please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9, the ninth chapter of Genesis. If you do not have a Bible, I strongly welcome you to go to this little table in, in the back over there. There's yellow and white Bibles. We will be in Genesis chapter 9 together. But first, let us pray. O God, whose never-failing providence ordereth all things, both in heaven and earth, we humbly beseech thee to put away from us all hurtful things, to give us those things which are profitable to us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This week I had two very powerful experiences of the providence of God in my life. First, my, one day this week, my little daughter and son and I were eating breakfast in our kitchen. A few of you have been to my house, you can probably picture the window I was sitting by, and we heard so many birds outside our window. It's an exciting time for my daughter because she's starting to realize there are different kinds of birds. There are blue jays and cardinals and chickadees and sparrows. And sometimes you can tell what kind of bird is nearby before you see it. You can just hear its voice, and if you know its song, you can tell what kind of bird it is. So in the icy morning air, we heard the high-pitched singing of wax wings. Those are beautiful birds. They have a black and white head and a yellow tummy and little red streaks on their wings that look, feel like wax. That's why they're called wax wings. And we had this amazing moment. And I, I was thinking of the verse in the Gospels where our Lord says that are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, fear of more value than many sparrows. And at that moment, what fell to the ground was my daughter's yogurt, and my son put his bowl of peanut butter oatmeal directly on top of his head like a helmet. And uh, it, was, it was a sweet and messy scene at the same time. Another experience of Providence in my life this week is that yesterday, I had the, the joy and privilege of attending the installation service at Christ Church Plano for Bishop Paul Donison. He is the new General Secretary of GAFCON. That is the global family of Anglican churches working to restore the biblical roots of the global Anglican communion. And at this service yesterday, the Archbishop of Rwanda, Laurent Mbanda, he preached and it was amazing. The Archbishop of Brazil gave an address. It was amazing. Um, I received communion from Archbishop Foley Beach, the Archbishop of the ACNA. And this was all a very tangible, real reminder to me that God not only governs and rules all things, but especially his church. But funnily enough, after that big service, we were all served cake, and Lent started this week. So, that, you know, not a, not a great start for many of us. Uh, in the similar way, if you were at our Ash Wednesday service this week, literally on the way out the door from the beginning of our Lenten fast, we were all offered chocolate chip cookies by the YMCA. Uh, so for many of us, not off to the best start to Lent if you gave up chocolate as I did. Um, but hopefully there will be something useful for you here for your Lenten fast uh, in this sermon this morning. Um, hopefully there will be a word of encouragement for you in your Lenten fasting as we do away with those things we rely upon to get through the day to remind us of our deep need for God, to, to rid us of our sense of self-sufficiency and remind us that we depend on him for all things. This year, during Lent, our, our new rector is leading us to go through the Old Testament readings in our Old Testament lectionary. And what we find in these readings will be one big unfolding covenantal story. These texts all tell, will tell one big story in the weeks ahead of how God works through covenants to relate to and redeem creatures, 
beginning this morning with the story you just heard of God's covenant with Noah. You'll hear in weeks ahead of God's covenant at Mount Sinai in the Exodus. You'll hear about God's promises for the restoration of his exiled people in 2 Chronicles and more, including God's new covenant promised in Jeremiah. But this morning, um, we're turning our attention to an amazing story of the flood with Noah. And the authors of the New Testament especially emphasized Noah as a preacher of repentance. In 2 Peter 4.10, for example, Noah is described as a herald of righteousness. Um, in Hebrews chapter 11, Noah is a model of faith in things unseen, um, that he's an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith, Hebrews 11.7. But where the New Testament authors found great encouragement and hope in the story of Noah's flood, the story has kind of fallen on hard times in modernity. The story in Genesis 9 of God making a covenant to forestall judgment and preserve all of creation for a few reasons can be off-putting for people, especially in the modern Western world. Today, I want to invite you to explore the testimony of this passage to how God, in his kindness, is extraordinarily patient. God invites us to turn towards him in repentance and faith. God, in this flood story, proclaims his good news to you this morning, that in Christ, God is with us and God is for us. God does not give up on us. God does not shrug and walk away or give up when the creation God called very good became only evil all the time, Genesis 6-5. God doesn't trash creation. This passage about Noah is a story of hope. God does not let us and all of creation slip away, does not let us get overwhelmed by the forces of chaos, death, and nothingness. Rather, in this story, God snatches life out of death, wrenching us from the darkness we willfully plunge ourselves into, inviting us out of the futility and the frustration of our disordered love of self above all else. As we are slain with Christ and raised with him, God recreates us, reorders our affections, desires, and the whole of life in the body to behold God in his infinite perfection and beauty and goodness. So to spell this out, the central point of the sermon today is that God is committed to upholding, preserving, and redeeming all of his good but broken creation. Quintessentially, as the story of God's covenant with Noah points forward to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we are united with Christ by faith, especially as we pass with Christ through the waters of baptism, as a means of grace in our lives, we are named into the triune name of God. We are initiated into the body of Christ, entering into the ark of the church as a vessel of salvation. So I invite you now to, to, to look with me at Genesis chapter 9. Let's look, at, let's look at what's actually in this passage first and explore together why we struggle with it today. Genesis chapter 9. Notice in verse 10 that God speaks, announcing that he's going to make a covenant with every living thing on earth. In verse 11, the precise contents of the covenant God is making are spelled out. God has established a covenant to never destroy the earth, rather God will preserve it. And the scope of this covenant is further clarified in verse 12. It is made not just with Noah, not just with his family, not just with humanity, with every living creature, even the birds and the rabbits, even the, the whole of life on earth is involved here. Finally, in verse 13, God amazingly announces that he is giving a sign of this covenant. And God says, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So in this passage, how does God work? 
God relates to creatures through covenants, by making promises. And God assures us of his promises by giving us covenant signs. The sign given here is the rainbow. So in Hebrew, the word used here, keshet, is not a word that just means rainbow, but also more generally it's the term for bow, such as war bow or hunting bow. Perhaps a few of you in this room have, have, such, have a hunting bow. The, the translators of our English Standard Version, which we tend to use at this church, wisely, they do not use the English word rainbow. But if you, were, if you have the ESV with you, look at verse 13. You just see the word bow. I've set my bow in the clouds. Every other instance of this word in Genesis in the Hebrew Bible is simply a reference to a bow, not a rainbow. Previously, in Genesis 6-5, we are told that after God's good creation was subjected to futility because of humanity's sin and rebellion, that sin and death spread throughout creation, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In this story of the flood, God, as it were, purifies the cosmos temple of the earth, but not to do away with it forever. Rather, as it were, God is a conductor saying, let's take it from the top again. He's the God both of setting right what is wrong, but also of second chances, of remaining committed to the good world God created and loves. Material, physical existence is not the problem here. Sin and death are the problem that have corrupted the, God's good world. But God is committed to upholding and redeeming every square inch of it. And God proves this by hanging up his war bow in the clouds. As both the late Tim Keller and the Jesus Storybook Bible, which our nursery sometimes uses, both rightly note, now God's war bow is not pointing down towards the earth. It's pointing up into the heart of heaven. God will never again unleash his bow on the world like this flood. The next time that would happen, as it were, God's judgment against sin would be taken on by God himself, the judge judged in our place. But how intelligible is that story to our contemporary, modern, secularizing world? I want to suggest to you that it's not only intelligible, but actually compelling, good, something you should long for it to be true for. Perhaps this morning, even now, God is summoning you and I to participate in this drama. But we struggle with this story for at least three reasons. First, in the, in the 1800s and in the 1900s, the discovery of numerous flood stories in the ancient Near Eastern context of Genesis prompted some people to find little that's interesting or true in the Genesis story. Um, you know, is this just ancient Israelites recycling the flood myths of their neighbors? There are all these ancient flood stories in the ancient world. For, for the sake of brevity, I can't go into much detail on those ancient stories, but they're widely available online, such as the Enuma Elish, the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Atrahasis Epic. But they each include some kind of creation myth and some kind of flood story that closely resembles the story we find in Genesis 6 through 9. There's a huge flood. There's a big boat. Animals are put on it. The boat stops on a mountain. There's an there's a offering, a sacrifice made afterwards, and the god or the gods smell it. What are we to make of all these stories? How do they relate to Genesis? It's not implausible that there was some severe local flood around 3000 BC that seemed to cover the entire known world as they understood it. But there are also enormous, crucial differences between the biblical account and these other flood stories. Arguably, the Genesis account is a kind of anti-version of these other stories, clarifying who the true God is in relation to these other stories about God. First, there are completely different visions of God between Genesis and those ancient stories. 
distinctive and crucial to Genesis is a, is a vision of God, especially at creation, as a master craftsman, an ordered worker, meticulously building the cosmos as a temple in which God rests as a royal king. In the ancient world, the final thing that would be placed in a newly constructed temple would be an image of the God. And the image placed into the temple of creation is humanity. That's the image of God. And all these other stories, the gods are as capricious and fickle and flawed as human beings, sometimes worse than the average human being. Also in these non-biblical stories, creation is either the fallout of a cosmic struggle or collateral damage or a kind of refuse. It's not something that's called very good. Second, there's a completely different vision of humanity between Genesis and those ancient stories. In the Atrahasis epic, humanity is created to be slave laborers for the god. And a flood comes because humanity is too noisy. That is why the flood comes. By contrast, in Genesis 2.15, humanity is tasked with working, caring for the earth. And that is the same language that the priests would, for what, they would, what their work was in the temple. Humanity is given this priestly task of caring for creation. And our downfall and the cause of the flood was our failure to live up to that high and honored status. What was very good is now only evil all the time. We relate to creation in an exploitive and destructive way, which is injustice. We, we relate to one another in ways that are, are cruel and unloving. And we presume to worship ourselves as though we were gods, which is sacrilege. By contrast, in the Atrahasis epic, humanity is, is wiped out and the gods use the flood as a kind of population control. In Genesis, God in chapter 9 reissues the command given to Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. God is, re, is still committed to his good creation being filled with his glory. So I don't think we should be surprised at all to find flood myths in the ancient in Near Eastern world, nor should we be troubled by them. They actually help us appreciate the humane and realistic vision of the world we find in the Bible, that creation is good but fallen, and it gives us a glorious contrast of our God as creator, sustainer, and redeemer of all things. But another reason why this story can be plexing to us today is that many of us are less than comforted by this vision of God as preserving all things. Perhaps you were troubled by it, even as it's read this morning. The contents of God's covenant with Noah, that creation will be preserved, reflects the doctrine of divine providence. Given the atrocities of history, the, the physical and psychic pain we all know, and the disordered forces of chaos overwhelming the world around us, the notion that Creation is governed, upheld, and sustained by a benevolent, all-powerful deity can seem not merely just self-evidently mistaken, but offensive. Is a good almighty God over this sinful and broken world? But what is it that Christians actually believe about providence? Probably the most helpful, short, and elegant statement of providence from Christian history is from the Heidelberg Catechism, a, a great Confession of Faith from the Protestant Reformation in 1563. And in part of the catechism, it goes through the Apostles' Creed and asks what we will say in just a moment when we confess the Nicene Creed, that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And the answer is given, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and all that is in them, and still upholds and sustains them by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for the sake of Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I so completely trust as to have no doubt. He will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul. 
and will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. He's able to do so as Almighty God and willing also as a faithful father. So the catechism then asks to clarify, well, what do you mean by divine providence? What does that mean? And the answer is that God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, God still governs and upholds heaven and earth and all that is in them, as, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That is providence. But the catechism then gets really practical. What does that mean for daily life? What does that mean for when we suffer? What does that mean for when we witness hardship and, and horrors in the world? It doesn't mean everything's going to go well for us all the time. It doesn't mean we're always going to be healthy and wealthy and popular. Rather, the answer is given. What does it benefit you to know that, that God upholds all things by providence? The answer is we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life of sorrow. No creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that apart from his will, they cannot so much as move. Trust in providence allowed Joseph to forgive his treacherous brothers and say to them, not, I'm going to wreak vengeance on you now, but what you meant for evil, God used for good. That's providence in action. Providence is also the testimony of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, which, which comments on how things do seem to come to us by chance. The outcome of life often seems arbitrary. The wicked flourish. The righteous perish. How can all things be upheld by God? But nonetheless, Ecclesiastes trusts that at the heart of everything is God upholding all things, that life is best lived in trusting ourselves to providence, even when things come to us seemingly by chance. Compare that, the hope inherent to that, with the nihilistic, atheistic materialism that comes from someone like Friedrich Nietzsche or the existential philosophers, who say, you come from nothing, there's no meaning in your life, and you're going nowhere. That's not only intellectually suspect, it's existentially unsatisfying, that there's no real meaning, that what we mean to one another ultimately is nothing. It's just kind of a, a dream that we make up to, to make existence bearable. Rather than that, you can entrust yourself to an almighty and faithful creator. Of course, again, divine providence does not mean we will always have things go our way. In, Paul, in Acts, Paul says, through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. But the doctrine of providence might be putting, off-putting to you because you might have seen it misused, might have seen it abused. There's some very famous examples of this. Um, you know, think of the tyrant king Macbeth in, the, in Shakespeare's Scottish tragedy, telling, announcing, I bear a charmed life, right before Macduff cuts him down. Um, you, you know, one of the most troubling uses of providence in history is that of Adolf Hitler himself. In 1944, after the Valkyrie assassination attempt on his life, he said, his, his he said about his survival, I regard this as a confirmation of the task imposed on me by providence, to continue on the road of my life as I've done hitherto. It's blasphemy. But the, there was, the right way to respond to that is not to do away with the doctrine of providence, but to use it rightly. By contrast, around the same time, Karl Barth, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the confessing church in Germany, they gathered at Barmen in 1934, and they issued this declaration. Jesus Christ, as he is attested to us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God whom we have to hear and whom we have to trust and obey in life and in death. We reject the false doctrine that the church could and should recognize 
as a source of its proclamation, beside and beyond this one word of God, yet other events, powers, historic figures, and truths as God's revelation. So, the church must continually seek God's guidance and leading in our lives. But we must also beware of people who claim to know the secret counsel of God's providence, especially if they're doing so for personal gain. Here's why all this matters for you and for me. In the words of the great Dutch theologian Herman Bobbink, the doctrine of providence is a mystery that far surpasses our understanding. It encompasses all things, not only the good, but also sin and suffering, sorrow and death. For if these realities were removed from God's guidance, what in the world would there be left for him to rule? God's providence is manifest not only nor primarily in the extraordinary events of life, seeing a new bishop installed, and in miracles, but equally as much in the stable order of nature and the ordinary occurrences of daily life, eating breakfast and looking at birds. What an impoverished faith it would be if it saw God's hand and counsel from afar in a few momentous events, but did not discern it in a person's own life and lot. But so, as the almighty and everywhere present power of God, it makes us grateful when things go well and patient when things go against us, prompts us to rest with childlike submission in the guidance of the Lord, and at the same time arouses us from inertia to the highest levels of activity in all circumstances of life. It gives us a good confidence in our faithful God and Father that he will provide what we need both for body and soul and will turn to our good whatever adversity he sends us in this sad world. Divine providence thus allows us to pray with Julian of Norwich, all manner of things shall be well, in defiance of our circumstances, because God has already spoken the final word of history when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Last, the, the vision of God himself in the story can be off-putting. The theology proper of the story, God as a righteous judge can grate on modern sensibilities of inclusiveness and affirming others, isn't this story of God flooding the whole world kind of in bad taste? A bit harsh. Besides, what does is, what is God's action in this story really accomplish? Humanity's sinful before the flood and sinful after the flood. There's all kinds of stories of cruelty and perversion in the rest of the, the, rest of the Bible. What, why preserve the world through Noah? Why put all the animals on the boat if it's still sinful and flawed afterwards? The good news is that God is patient, delaying his judgment so we might repent. But also God is not indifferent to evil. He will not let it go on forever, nor will he allow it to have the last word. God will one day triumph over the cosmic powers of sin and death. But God is simultaneously committed to upholding, defending, preserving, and delivering his good creation in order to bring it to the glorious freedom it was created for. That is amazingly good news. But it might be bad news for you and for me if we have not been reconciled to God through his son. But the good news of the gospel is that the justice and mercy of God meet in the cross of Christ. And in his resurrection, the world is remade. The assault God makes in the gospel is not on creation, but on the forces of sin and death that rob creation of the life with God we were created for. At its heart, what you should find in this story of the flood is a figure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. St. Augustine famously regarded the, the door in the side of the ark as signifying the wound of Christ when he was pierced with the spear on the cross. But the fathers especially, the church fathers regarded the ark as a prefiguring of the church, um, especially in the sacrament of baptism. As early as 196, 
the year 196, Tertullian wrote about how the ark was a figure for the church. Cyprian of Carthage, a century later in the third century, declared the ark is a type of the one church. And in many churches, when you go, when you go to churches, the, the big part of the room most of the congregation is seated in is called the nave. It's from the Latin word for ship because the church is the vessel of salvation, sojourning towards the new creation. So along those lines, that's why Augustine declared that without doubt, Noah's Ark is a symbol of the city of God on pilgrimage in this world. That is of the church, which is saved through the wood upon which hung the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But the church fathers aren't making this stuff up about the Ark being a figure for the gospel and for the church. You heard something like that from the apostles themselves in our, our, our epistle reading this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, which says that it is better to suffer for doing good, that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also once suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in whom he went and preached to the spirits imprisoned while, while God's patience waited during the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few persons, that is eight, eight souls, were, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through G the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who went into heaven and is seated at God's right hand with angels, powers, and authorities having been subjected to him. Baptism now saves you, is what 1 Peter 3.21 says. Baptism with water into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a means of grace. The rite itself is not what saves us. Christ is who saves us. And baptism is a means God uses to unite us with Christ. Paul says in Romans 6 that through our baptism, we are united with Christ. We're buried with him. Christ himself alone is the source of salvation. But as we are joined with him, we know him and all his benefits. And just as God gave Noah a physical visible, tangible sign, which you can still see today after a storm. So in baptism, God has given you a physical, outward, tangible sign of his promises, of his inward and invisible grace in your life. Just as surely as water washes away dirt from the body, so surely does God wash us in body and soul. In baptism, God speaks a visible word, declaring the promise of the gospel, which we are all summoned to hear again and again. Just as God gave the covenant sign of circumcision to Abraham and his children, so we likewise give the covenant sign of baptism to believers and their children. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we must not be like those who were baptized into Moses, he says in the Exodus, but perished in the wilderness through unbelief. We all must personally appropriate for ourselves the promises of God signified and sealed to us in our baptism and live accordingly. When is the last time you pondered the significance of your baptism? When you are tempted or when you see someone else baptized, it's a good time to remember your baptism, its nature, and the ends for which Christ instituted it. Remember the vows you made. Renew them. Remembering our baptism helps us draw strength from the death and resurrection of, of Christ into whom we are baptized for killing sin and putting on virtue. It also reminds us of the unity we have, that we're not just relating to God as individuals, but we're part of one body who share one baptism. That is why every week, many Anglicans, when they come into the service, they touch the waters of baptism, and they also touch them on the way out to remind ourselves, as Paul says in Galatians 3.27, all of you who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. I invite you to join us on the vessel of salvation. 
entrust yourself to God. Remember your baptism. Remember the, the outward and visible signs of God's grace he's given us, both in the rainbow. And let us now pray. Almighty God, we thank you for giving us the story of Noah's flood. I pray that you'd especially be with our church during this time of Lent, especially as we fast. I pray that your grace in our lives would remind us that you uphold and preserve all things. Almighty and everlasting Father, in your great mercy, you saved Noah and his family in the ark from the destruction of the flood, prefiguring the sacrament of holy baptism. Look mercifully upon us, wash and sanctify us through your Holy Spirit, that we may be delivered from destruction and received into the ark of Christ's church. And being steadfast in faith, joyful through hope, and rooted in love, we may pass through the turbulent floods of this troublesome world and come into the land of everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.